If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Money. George Orwell, the author of classics such as 1984, is a household name. But have you heard of his first wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, who convinced her husband to write a political fable which evolved into Animal Farm? Despite being vital in Orwell's career, O'Shaughnessy has been omitted from history by both her husband and his biographers since. Speaking to Lauren Good, Anna Funder reveals the hidden life of Eileen O'Shaughnessy and what she tells us about women who facilitated the success of their husbands. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for speaking on the History Extra podcast. It's my pleasure, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Your new book, Wifedom, explores the forgotten life of Eileen O'Shaughnessy, George Orwell's wife. How did you come to write about her? I was interested in perhaps writing a novel at one point about Orwell's experience writing 1984, which he did on a remote Scottish island called Jura in a farmhouse that was very isolated and he was very ill. And he was kind of heroically tapping out this vision of the future he knew he wasn't going to see. And I read my way through Orwell and then through the six major biographies of him, all written by men. And after I'd finished that, I came across these letters that Eileen had written to her best friend from their time together at Oxford reading English in the 1920s. And they were only discovered in 2005. So the biographers didn't have the benefit of them. And the first of them, she's writing almost six months after the wedding, her first letter to her best friend, because she's sort of just coming up for air after living in this tiny cottage in the country with Orwell. And she writes, Dear Nora, I'm sorry I haven't written to you sooner, but we have quarrelled so continuously and really bitterly since the wedding that I thought I'd just write one letter to everyone once the murder or separation was accomplished. And I thought that was so funny. I couldn't, hilarious in this letter and so insightful that I thought, how is it that I've just read these six biographies and I have just a very dim, glancing idea of who this woman was who was married to Orwell during his great creative period, the period that really made him. And I went back to the biographies and they write things like, well, these newlywed months were idyllic for Orwell conditions were perfect. He had never been happier before or since. So I wondered in between this man enjoying perfect conditions, which don't appear to have a woman making them, and the woman who wants to kill him, even in jest, maybe there's room for a book both about her, I suppose, and about how it is that she has been written out of history. And you've just mentioned the difficulty of this marriage. Before we delve into the life of Eileen, what have you discovered about Orwell due to the discovery of his wife? Orwell appears to us in history, if I can be very kind of general about it, as a decent man of integrity who took an underdog point of view, a left-wing 
anti-Stalinist point of view on the events of his time and who was close to a genius creating these books, particularly Animal Farm in 1984. And when you read the biographies, the biographers naturally enough are in love with their subject, as you sort of need to be. But in order to make an image of a decent man who did all his work alone, you have to get rid of, consciously or unconsciously, actively or passively, you have to get rid of all the women who helped him, nurtured him, mentored him, patronised him and so on. So all the women he got help from, including most notably his extremely clever wife who'd read English under Tolkien when Orwell hadn't been to university and so on. So the things that he got from women and then what you also have to get rid of in order to maintain the image of this decent man is what he did to women. And a lot of that is either in terms of what the biographers describe as pouncing a behaviour that looks like sexual assault, both before his marriage and during his marriage. And that behaviour, he was monumentally unfaithful to Eileen during the marriage, including in ways that were designed really to hurt her. So he wanted her to know about it. He tried and did sleep with one of her very close friends. So it seemed to me that structurally, if we're looking at the creation of a decent man or I could have looked at any great artist of the 20th century probably and this would have been going on. But for Orwell it's very extreme because he does present himself as this decent underdog fellow. That, you know, it starts in the biographies with the trivialisation or omission of his mother and aunt who were suffragettes, feminists. The aunt ran a literary salon in London to which she invited luminaries of the day like H.G. Wells and Chesterton and Nesbitt. And as a teenager, she invited Orwell along. Aunt Nellie had been arrested with the Pankhursts for demonstrating for suffrage. So these are women who are left-wing, see things from an underdog point of view because they're feminists aware of the position of women. Orwell was very close to both of them and had an intellectual engagement about politics and sexual politics with Aunt Nellie his whole life. But if you read the biographies, they are really minor characters and they are not responsible for his intellectual interests or development. This man who grows up to be a left-wing person seeing things from an underdog point of view, rather we get a lot about the Blair side of things, his father's side of things. And his father had no intellectual interests and was a lowly civil servant in the colonial empire. So that is a massive omission. And then I came to the issue of Eileen, which was enormous and Eventually, six years later, I'm emerging from the book of her to try and make her reappear. And much of the research for your book derives from letters that Eileen wrote to her friend. What people contribute to the limited written sources we have of Eileen today? Eileen and George, sadly, were quite, they seem to be kind of cavalier or very unsentimental about letters to and from one another or perhaps secretive, I don't know. Eileen destroyed... There are no letters from Nora back to Eileen and there are very, very few from George to Eileen. These six letters were an absolute treasure trove for me because if you're writing to your best friend, that's a hugely intimate thing to do, but it's also very interesting what Eileen leaves out of those letters. And once I knew where she was when she wrote them, for instance, the very first murder or separation letter, she doesn't tell Nora 
that George is off to Spain to fight in the next couple of weeks, which is rather a major omission. And she does say, though, at the end of that letter, I've tried to come and see you twice, Nora's living in Bristol. But every time I try to leave, George gets something when he has notice of the fact. And if I try to leave without him knowing, he gets something so that I have to come back. So he's kind of using his tubercular, or at that point pre-tubercular, bad lungs to manipulate her. So she doesn't say he's going off to Spain, I think because she doesn't want Nora to be concerned for her in some way, but she does signal that she is being kind of controlled or made to stay in the cottage looking after him. There were other sources. So she did write wonderful letters from Spain where she went to work in a political job in the headquarters of the ILP while Orwell was off in the trenches of the front, something that you won't learn either from Homage to Catalonia, Orwell's account of fighting in Spain, where he appears to have been almost alone in Spain the whole time, nor in the biographies do you learn about her role in that office. But I unearthed that. So in terms of sources from Eileen, yes, letters to Orwell, letters to his mother, some accounts of a very close friend who was there. Eileen, when she met George, was studying for a master's in psychology at UCL and they met at a party because Orwell was living with another woman who was a fellow student in that course and Rosalind, his flatmate, threw this party and Eileen turned up at that party. So a lot of their friends, I suppose, were educated people who often, or some of them, Eileen's friend Lydia, for instance, in this case, with whom she goes to the party, left an account of this meeting, this very first coup de foudre meeting with Orwell in her memoirs and in an essay about Eileen. So there are these wonderful accounts of women. Later in the war, Eileen supported them both by working in interesting jobs during the war, one of them for almost two years in the Department of Censorship of the Ministry of Information, very much played down by the biographers in Senate House, which Orwell took as the model for the Ministry of Truth in 1984 later. And then she worked at the Ministry of Food and one of her colleagues there was a woman called Lettuce Cooper. I always think it's such a good name for someone who working at the Ministry of Food. And Lettuce Cooper was a novelist and she based a character in one of her novels on Eileen and she also wrote and gave biographers accounts of Eileen. So there are these lovely, very close-up, snippets of information about Eileen that were there to have. The other really important thing for me, untangling her role in the Spanish Civil War, which, as I mentioned, is just obliterated, omitted, trivialised, you know, to sort of disappearing levels by both Orwell and the biographers, was an account of a man that she worked for there in the office called Charles Orr, who was an American economist. And he was responsible for propaganda of the little ILP party, which was a sister party to the Spanish Poom. And Eileen and he were writing this and she was typing it for broadcast and print. So they were getting all the news from the front and kind of turning it into, I imagine, I haven't seen what they were doing, but turning it into stories that were slightly more glorious than what was actually going on at the front, which was desultory and rather miserable. And he left an account of her time in the office there saying, Compared to all the other spies and grifters, chances, militiamen, so-called journalists 
operatives who drifted through our office, Eileen was a superior person. And that's something that no biographer uses because if you have that information, then you have to really write about Eileen because if she's a superior person, then you have to say, what is she doing? How does she save George's life in Spain? What was her political work? How was she in danger? How clever was she politically? How did her political insight inform Orwell's? And so on, and that's something that they don't do. So I really went behind the biographies into their sources, read the sources, found what was left out, and then found other sources and pieced together this portrait of Eileen and I suppose of a marriage, really. And what can we interpret from these sources that you've just described about the sort of woman Eileen was? Eileen was extremely clever. Orwell famously described himself as coming from a family that was lower, upper middle class, by which I think he meant upper middle class without money to really be it. Eileen came from a family that was better off and she was extremely clever, was head girl and ducks at school, got a scholarship to read English in the 1920s at Oxford. So Tolkien was one of her teachers there. After that, she lived an independent life working in London for about nine years in various offices as a so-called secretary, which is a rather hold-all term for a lot of editing and rewriting work that she seems to have done for people who came in with manuscripts that needed help. And at one point, she worked for a woman who was a terrible bully, and Eileen arranged a mass walkout in the office, and apparently, according to one witness, walked out in triumph. So she's a woman who has this decency, this value that Orwell likes so much and the courage to set it in action. She was very witty, very whimsical, very funny. She could see, one person said of her letters actually from the ministry, that when they first met her, she took so long to respond to something that you said to her that they thought, Maybe she's affected in some way, but it was actually because she was looking so closely at a person. Letters said she saw you and what you said to her with all its ramifications and permutations and combinations. She looked at people as if their outsides and their manners were glass. Letters said what she saw were their feelings. So that fascinates me as a novelist because I think that's what novelists do. We are always looking for what it is that somebody else is feeling. And everybody loved Eileen, and I think it's because she really saw them and listened to them and responded to them. So very interesting as a character for me. And omission is a frequent theme throughout your book, often pertaining to the invisible work Eileen carries out to allow her husband to write. Once Eileen had married Orwell... What did she do behind the scenes to grant him more time to work? Yes, I'm interested in this because I'm interested in it in my own life and the life of many heterosexual women friends of mine. There is, particularly with children, there is a kind of negotiating over time that goes on in heterosexual marriages in patriarchy because the time is a finite commodity. It can be snuck stolen, bargained for, traded. And really it seemed to me in this extreme case of this marriage 80 years ago, which however extreme it might seem to us now, is not beyond comprehension. It reflects 
labour and time allocations that are still in place today because, as we know, in every society, women do more unpaid, unasked, unthanked work of life and love in the home than that men do that they live with. So Eileen was doing broad brush, two kinds of work. She was doing, they had this sort of cottage garden and animals. They had two goats and a whole lot of chickens and she'd named the goats (laughs) after his aunt Nellie who came and overstayed her welcome and the other one she named Mabel which was either after an ex-girlfriend of Orwell's or after his mother whose name was Ida Mabel and the chickens and she had thought she might write a book with the farm animals as characters in it but she didn't have time because she was doing this cottage outside of London had no electricity one tap an outdoor privy it was extremely primitive no heating just a fire so She was doing gardening, animal wrangling. She had to clean out the cesspit at some point because he wouldn't do it. It overflowed, something she remembered her whole life. Cooking three meals a day. In the early days of their marriage, he had wanted to dress for dinner. She thought that was ridiculous. It was just the two of them in this sort of hovel. So she's doing all of this practical work. He said a week after they got married, he he was very cross because he said he'd only done two good days' work out of seven. So that tells us pretty clearly what he was expecting in a wife, the kind of labour. And the other kind of labour that she did was intellectual for him. So she had, as I say, this extraordinary education and this writing gift. And she wrote emendations, as she described them, on all of his work. And people remarked after the marriage that all of a sudden, for reasons that they couldn't quite fathom, one biographer says, whether by coincidence or influence, his work improved after his wedding. So these are the ways in which her contribution, which was enormous and beneficial to the work, is minimised and she remains unnamed. In fact, that goes on to the sort of extreme point with her involvement with the writing of Animal Farm. And you discussed earlier Eileen's presence in Spain on the front line where Orwell went to fight and she helped nurse him after he had been shot in the throat. You mention in the book, in his work, Homage to Catalonia, the way the text buckles and strains to avoid her. Why do you think Orwell did omit her from his work? I think he wanted to give the impression that he was there alone. I think it would have been a very different book if he had to say, my wife, Eileen, was working at headquarters while I was off in the trenches and didn't really have much of an idea of the political situation in Barcelona, of the threat that the Stalinists were going to liquidate the party at party headquarters. I think that's a very different kind of book than the book of this grumbling, brave, every man with, as he says, he's a terrible shot He's got lice crawling down the inseam of his trousers and all over his testicles and so on. So he kind of cleaves you to him with this self-deprecation. But when you understand that, for instance, in the street fighting that broke out when Stalin decides to quash the revolution and kill members of the ILP and the POOM, foreign combatants, civilians, wives, Eileen, because of her work at the office, where there were Stalinist spies working alongside her. She knew that there were spies in the office. She didn't know who they were. She was a political target and she was in danger. I think it would have, in his mind, kind of lessened his involvement in the war, his exposure to danger and his courage 
if he had had to represent all of those things about her. And finally, Anna, in light of all of this, how should we rethink not just Orwell, but famous male artists who had their wives working in the shadows to facilitate their success? Such a big question, such a good question. We will always have the work that these men, and sometimes along with their wives or with the support of their wives or with the involvement of their wives, made. So we can always enjoy the work. In Orwell's case, for instance, Animal Farm, which is an utter outlier in all of his work. And when he wanted to write that, he wanted to write an essay critical of Stalin. And Eileen, who had been working at the Department of Censorship in the Ministry of Information during the war, knew that because Stalin was helping the Allies win the war, an essay critical of Stalin would never be published anywhere. So she then convinced him to write a novel instead, a satire, a fable, and every evening as the bombs fell in London they worked on that together and she then turned up at work the next day when she was at that point at the Ministry of Food and would regale her friends with each instalment as it went along. So she was kind of rehearsing those scenes and... When it was published, even Orwell's publisher said, Fred Warburg, who knew Eileen really well, said, we just can't understand it. The writer of rather grey novels has suddenly taken wings and become a poet. So these ways in which women remain invisible, even when their voice is so clearly in that book, is very, very powerful. All of which is just to say we still have Animal Farm and we still have 1984. To complete the picture of the man. So eventually when I'd read all of these biographies and I knew what was left out and importantly who was left out, most particularly Eileen, I came to think of them as fictions of omission in order to create this image, speaking very generally now, of a decent everyman underdog genius who did all his work alone. That's a very attractive, not just 20th century myth of the artist. I mean, it goes back hundreds if not thousands of years. These individual men who owe nothing to women, do nothing bad to women and somehow miraculously produce all this work alone. So I wanted to write a fiction of inclusion that put most notably Eileen back into this work. That is to take nothing away from the work, to complete the picture of the man. And speaking as a writer myself, it's very interesting to me as a writer and a wife, I'm doing the work of wife, I have a fantastic husband, but... I'm still doing probably much more than 50% of that work. So to see what it takes behind the scenes to make great work is very interesting as a woman and a writer and it takes nothing away from the work. In fact, it's an Orwellian concept, the concept of doublethink, that I turn to when I'm trying to think about how to hold in my mind the two things at the one time, the man and his work and the life and the wife and just see how they all fed into each other. And actually it's sort of quite encouraging. There is a debate currently about cancelling men generally who've done awful or illegal things often to women as if that would be to, I mean, these, you know, in Orwell's case obviously he's dead and gone and but somehow as if it taints the work. But for me it doesn't at all because... If we say look at 1984, just to be really specific about it, that is a book that is enormously sadistic, violent and misogynist. 
So that vision that we want to see, we want to see, and it's important to have a vision of a sort of totalitarian world. Now we live in a world of rising totalitarianisms and blanket surveillance. So that work is very, very important to us still. But to expect it to come not from someone who is bringing up this sense of sort of paranoid sadism and violence is naive. So I think it's much more interesting to have a fuller picture of the man, the life and the work and the wife. That was Anna Funder, author of Wifedom, Mrs Orwell's Invisible Life, which is published by Viking and on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.